The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And I didn't want to just sit up here and give you a dry lecture. I'd like this to be interactive. And I have some, I see some friends in the audience who have been studying this lot, a lot longer than I have. So if I veer off course, I, I invite you to correct me or, or give your opinions or your corrections. Um, and so feel free at any point to, uh, to ask a question. To, um, I'll ask you some questions. I won't call on people individually, but I'll give you some questions to chew on. And for anything more than just a, a simple, um, very simple question, let's see if we could use the microphones. Um, over the years, I've pretty much attended all of the Sati events, either live or virtually, and the, the recordings here are really uh, fabulous to, um, to study. And I'll, I'll re- be referring today to some of the uh, particular daylongs that have been taught here in the last 10 years that are, I think, very relevant for um, Sutta study. And, and really, the, the, you know, the, the theme of today, as it says up on the screen, uh, and really, I, th- I think the mission of the Sati Center is to co- combine um, serious study with practice, you know, not just so that we're academic intellectuals looking at this material, but we're actually um, delving into it and maybe enjoying it on an intellectual level, but then integrating it, you know, into our meditation practice and using what we learn in, um, in very practical, useful ways. So we'll have a period of uh, periods of discussion uh, with um, also some meditation periods. You can use those however you want. If you want to, um, I encourage you to get up and, and move around. But if you want to do walking meditation, if you want to just use the bathroom and sip a cup of tea, whatever whatever you like, or sitting meditation, there'll be about half hour periods and about an hour, 15 minute uh, discussion se- sessions uh, alternated with a lunch break uh, in the middle of the day. And, um, you know, I don't think we have to be in strict silence during the meditation periods, but if if you want to talk, maybe, you know, we could have some places where people could, uh, who want to, you know, just kind of go within and digest the material, um, places where they could be uh, in silence, like this room. And... um, and I guess it's a little hard in the kitchen because the kitchen kind of lends itself to talking and discussing. But maybe just outside here on this, this front uh, area could be in silence uh, as well. So this room and, and that. So if you want to do some walking meditation or get a breath of fresh air. And then the rest of the, the parking lot and the, uh, the places on the street if you want to. And I think that will just give everyone some options uh, to, on what they want to do during their, their periods. So today I'd like to invite you on a journey uh, back in time to the thought world of the Buddha. Um, we're really going to use the suttas as a way to get back to, you know, who the Buddha was, you know, what was the, the milieu that he came out of, uh, what kind of transformation, you know, try and get a, a bead on what kind of transformation he had in his life <clears throat> and then went on to teach and then how that evolved over his 45 years of teaching and became what we call the Dharma. And then that was, uh, after his death, has been transmitted down now 2,500 years to our current time. So this is like <clears throat> any journey to a foreign land. We'll um, encounter some uh, interesting uh, characters and um, we'll need, 
you know, a certain amount of preparation for this. Um, we'll also be speaking a foreign language. And I don't uh, just mean Pali. I mean, definitely we'll, we'll look at some Pali words and everything I'm going to talk about here, everything in the book is in translation into English. And we're very fortunate to be English speakers, to have so much of the, um, the suttas uh, translated now into, into very good quality translations in English. And so, but the, the foreign language I'm talking about is just this thought world of the Buddha, you know. I mean, we, we're familiar with a lot of it, like the Four Noble Truths and the Dharma and the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, these kind of terms. But it really, it's really helpful to, to be clear, clear on what they are. And then I'll be also um, writing some uh, Pali terms <coughs> up on the board. I like to use um, different visual aids. just to aid the learning process. So Pali, and we'll talk more about what Pali is. And I'll try and remember all the diacritics, uh, which are um, additional markings that are made on the Pali terms. Not all, all Pali words have it, but it... It's a phonetic language in the way it was, it was first transcribed, uh, required that. Um, I'm just going to turn the screen off. So um, those are just some general comments of how the, I thought the day would go. And then uh, kind of the material we'll cover, as I mentioned, it will be uh, the, just some background to Sutta study and Pali and, and the history, and then looking at the historical background of the Buddha, you know, because that's very relevant to what he developed and how he presented the material. Then his life and his awakening and, and death eventually, um, and the rise of the Dharma, his teachings, and then the Sangha, you know, the community of monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen who um, were very much influenced at that time and have you know, been the custodians of the Dharma that have brought it to us. So I thought we would start with, um, oh, and we'll end the day with the Metta Sutta. Uh, Gil has a very beautiful translation of it, and um, hopefully if we have time, I will um, play uh, a uh, like a four-minute audio clip of the Metta Sutta being chanted by Dhamma Ruan. I don't know any of you know him, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about him, but it's really beautiful uh, chanting of this, so it kind of will help us see how this all was uh, transmitted to us, you know, through chanting over these many years. So let's start with um, the question on why are you here? You know, why, uh, the bigger question is why study the suttas? Why, what, why is this of relevance and, and what brings you here today. And um, anyone have some general comments on why they're interested in the suttas? Bill? Because I'm still suffering. It's, the, com the comment was because I'm still suffering. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yes.
sorry. Um, so I just want to get a better foundation for myself for what I'm doing and not feel like I have to apologize if, uh, if I'm with family members who are uh, of another persuasion and, and very devoted and it works for them, but it doesn't work for me. And so I just need a better foundation for, for why I'm doing this with some facts and um, maybe you'll cover this later, but I wonder, all of these teachings, um, are there hidden things like has been found in the Bible where there are hidden books and translations and, you know, political stuff? And I, I wonder about that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, r- remind me of that question. It's, it's a really good one. And I have some thoughts on it, but no definitive answer. <laughs> but, yeah. Yes. Um, I'm here because um, I'm somehow drawn or feel this, I've called it Buddha elixir without reading anything about Buddha or knowing, and I don't know why I call it, or I've collected some Buddha statues and just go, oh, and now I finally realize the center was here. And um, I thought this would be good to find out why I'm just so... And I'll listen to chants and not have a clue of what they're saying. And I'm also, for whatever odd reason, not being a traveler, feel real drawn to go to Cambodia. So that's why I'm here. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. <clears throat> Anyone else? Any other comments? No one's here to uh, try and find the chinks in the armor of Buddhism to <laughs> disprove <laughs> the theories, the Dharma. I think uh, at times I've had that kind of approach, or that you know this, this doesn't, you know, can't make sense, or you know, just a, a kind of a defiance maybe, or a um, criticism of it. <clears throat> and we'll t- I'll talk a little bit more about that that attitude. Um, so I wrote down a few things that, uh, and, you know, thank you all for elaborating on more. Um, you know, primarily why I study the suttas is to really um, help my meditation practice. I mean, I, I like intellectual things, um, and, you know, maybe that's something I get attached to, but I really see this, uh, the suttas, you know, if I can discern when I'm getting caught up in my head, um, and really take in the teachings, and we'll talk about that in a minute on how to do that. Uh, I find that in my meditation practice really uh, is aided. Um, there's a lot of really uh, pithy phrases, some aphorisms, um, some, some analogies, some stories that give really concrete examples on how to deal with certain situations, you know, like if somebody's attacking you verbally or... Um, if you know you're you're tempted to be unfaithful to your spouse, or just just a lot of different stories in the the suttas that I find are you know even though they're really steeped in kind of a language in this thought world of, of ancient India, which we'll go into in a minute, and some, there's a lot of agrarian references. There's also a lot of stuff that's that's very relevant. So practical advice. <clears throat> it's fascinating. I think where all of this began. 
um, you know, and how it's evolved in the different lineages that we have. And this, you know, at IMC and Sati Center, we're just kind of one evolved lineage. We've been influenced by many, you know, and, and we're lucky that our founder, Gil, has, you know, a real strong Zen background and a really strong uh, Vipassana background. So we get, you know, kind of the benefits of both worlds. But uh, I, I find the history fascinating. And um, I think that essential for practice is a certain amount of faith. Even, you know, just coming here today, you had a certain amount of faith that there might, you know, you all have a lot of valuable things you could be doing today. So, you know, we, we have some faith that there's something here that might be of use uh, in our lives. So I, I find that reading the, this material really provides um, inspiration and uh, helps to build faith. <clears throat> Now, and there's more I'm sure you could come up with, but I'd like to also maybe give, um, I don't want to say why not to study this, the suttas. I, I think that would be pretty bold of me, but some caveats. And, and one was given by the Buddha himself um, in uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourse is in sutta number 22. We'll talk a little bit about what all that jargon means, but uh, uh, called the simile of the snake. And he talked about um, learning the Dharma and talking about the Dharma's uh, similar to grabbing a snake. If you grab the snake in the middle, so in other words, if you grab it wrong, the snake's going to reach around and bite you. <clears throat> but if you grab it behind the head, apparently, I've never grabbed a snake, but, and maybe this was something they needed to do in ancient India, but I've never grabbed a snake. But if you grab it behind the head, you can then manage it. It won't bite you, and you, know, you can do whatever you want with the snake. <clears throat> so he used that analogy to tell his disciples not to... Um, grab the Dharma wrong and that and specifically what he says is to impress others and to win arguments and I've certainly fallen into that trap to you know feel like you know oh I've I've got this little nugget about the Dharma and you know some of you know for example some of my uh, chums on the the sati board you know um, one one man in particular we're always we find I don't think we intend to do this but we find each other uh, ourselves kind of debating about all of this and you know and then as soon as we kind of fall into that it's like oh wait a minute this is this is not a uh, intellectual argument that you know we're not here to win or impress others um, also another a caveat I wanted to give about um, sutta study is um, sometimes when I'm reading things or learning about them I can get triggered uh, it, you know it can bring up um, you know just stuff from the past or, you know, I have, I think a lot of us here have relationships with maybe the religions or the faiths or the traditions that we were raised in. And some of the language, depending on who does the translation, some of the language can be very biblical sounding or it can sound, um, you know, especially some of the suttas are written for uh, most, I say most of the suttas were written uh, for monks. There were mixed audiences and there were men and women. Um, and there were, so there are lay people and monastics, but so and they're uh, pretty uh, at times pretty stark, pretty stern. A lot of discussion about uh, avoiding uh, sensual pleasure, you know, becoming addicted to sensual pleasure, and um, you know, really uh, striving uh, diligently to to uh, practice. And the, this kind of language, I think, it can be inflammatory to some of us and feel like it's you know, being very uh, judgmental or um, uh, stern. So it's just, it's not to uh, criticize that or say that it, there's a problem with that. It's just maybe to, as we go through it and as you study the suttas, to see, you know, how things, you know, come up for you or what, what you know, if you're reading a passage and you're finding, you know, 
Maybe you're reading something about devas or about to seat to heaven or different, you know, there's different aspects uh, that you'll find in the suttas that you might find just fantastical or, or you know, kind of whimsical or, or, you know, just improbable, whatever that is. Just uh, see if you can uh, approach it with somewhat of an open mind and say, yeah, you know, this is what this book says. I'm just going to kind of, I don't understand uh, rebirth. You know, I mean, I, I can get it grasped conceptually, but I've never had a rebirth experience that I can remember. So I just hold that kind of with lightly and say, okay, this is, you know, something that comes up again and again and again in the suttas is probably important. It's probably, you know, it's possibly real, but I can't confirm that, or at least I haven't yet confirmed that through my meditative practice. So I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of hold that now, those teachings on that as um, a possibility. Any comments or questions so far? on with another slide here. Um, and kind of a, a blueprint for doing this or any type of uh, Dharma practice is found in the suttas themselves. This is uh, DN means Digha Nikaya. Those are the uh, long discourses, sutta number 33. And that's the name in Pali, uh, Sangiti Sutta. And this is, this is a sutta that has a lot of lists of different things, and one of the lists is uh, different types of wisdom. The, the term for wisdom is panya, and I think some of you know that term. And there's three different ways, and it's kind of, I, I look at it as sort of a hierarchy of what we can do um, in our practice. And there's sutta maya, so this uh, sutta is not <clears throat> the sutta uh, that we, tangle up here, that we... Um, are studying today, that's with two T's, sutta. But this is the word to hear, which is how it was initially done. Um, and maya is made, so this is basically uh, wisdom gained by hearing. And I, I added reading because a lot of us now these days, you know, we, we listen to Dharma talks, but we also um, read Dharma books. And I brought um, kind of my top ten here to use also as visual aids, you know, when we go through the, the Pali canon, how, how big these things are. And, but also if you want on, on during the uh, meditation period to come up. And I'll make some recommendations for further reading after today. So Sutta Mayapanya, so wisdom gained by hearing or reading. So that's what we're doing here. We're talking and, you know, we're reading and um, we're kind of getting the, you know, the, the foundations of, of what the Dharma is. I'll, I'll use these two terms interchangeably, Dhamma and Dharma. Um, in the book, I decided to go with Dharma. That's the most common that we hear in our culture. And that's the Sanskrit version of the term. And Dhamma is the Pali version of the term. Um, so, you know, that's not a typo. It's, it's just how it is on the slide. Um, then there's Chintamayapanya. And uh, chinta is mind. So this is really, I, I look at it as the wisdom, the panya that we get from thinking about, you know, digesting, reflecting on um, what we've read or heard. That's the next step. And then there's bhavana maya panya. So bhavana is one of the terms used for meditation. It technically means uh, cultivation, development. Um, so it's, it's, I look at it as more of an experiential wisdom that we can get both on the cushion and off, but you know it's it's more of an uh, 
intuitive, more of a insight uh, that comes up. So this is kind of a blueprint for um, how we can uh, work with this material and use it um, skillfully. And, you know, just to kind of review, I think, you know, kind of hear the material or read it with an open mind, contemplate it, you know, maybe take some time to digest it. Um, It helps if we can do that with others. You know, we can discuss it. You know, with our friends, we have this term Kalyanamita, you know, spiritual friends, people on the pathway who are also doing this. Um, and at our, um, at many of our sutta study daylongs here at the Sati Center, we do that. Um, it's helpful to reread passages or read different translations. Um, a lot, uh, one of the big translators of, in English, of modern versions, I mean, the, the, the uh, first English uh, translations came out in the, 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. That tells you how long ago this that was. And some of that language is, is it was done by, I think they were Ang- uh, Anglican um, uh, government officials from in, in India, British Anglican. And they, uh, a lot of the language sounds very biblical and they use the term thou and, and, and this kind of stuff. Uh, but we have a lot of modern translations, and Bhikkhu Bodhi's been a, um, a, a quite a prolific translator. He's in, translated um, a good portion of the suttas, and also uh, Ajahn Jeff, who's one of the um, teachers who presents every year here, and uh, he's he's you know a, a supporter of the Sati Center, and you know quite a scholar, and and uh, also a person who um, I think skillfully combines the teachings with practical uh, wisdom on, on how to meditate and how to, you know, take it to the next level. Um, and then after, you know, reflecting on the material, then to, you know, just kind of sit with it and, and meditate and not, you know, at that point, maybe we can drop away the intellectual and the, the words and get into, you know, just, this, you know, what's going on in our bodies and our minds. You know, this is really the insight meditation vipassana practice that we do without really having an agenda. Just let it see what happens, how it evolves over time and what comes up naturally. So um, any questions on that or comments? It's all pretty basic stuff so far. Now, uh, what is a sutta? Um, the, uh, that's the Pali term, sutta. In Sanskrit, we'll have sutra. So you might hear that term. I should just get rid of this pen. Sutra. And in the book, and today I'll use sutta um, mainly. And this, uh, it's not really clear when it started to be applied to discourse. We, we kind of translate that word into discourse or teaching. Um, but initially, it meant to hold things together or to bind them. It's, it's the same root as the in English term um, we have, suture. You know, when we suture, which is something I do in my day job. Um, at some point, it came to mean discourse or scriptures. <clears throat> it's uh, really um, a word from Pali. And Pali, um, going to this a little bit, is a language, it's part of the uh, middle, uh, the Indo-Aryan languages, and Sanskrit is, you know, kind of the one that most of us know. 
about that. And um, we don't think that the Buddha spoke Pali, actually. Um, these, this is the language that uh, the teachings have been passed down in the Theravadan lineage. And actually, the, we think, anyways, there's a complete um, version of what the Buddha taught in the Pali canon. And it's the only canon. There's another uh, canon, the Chinese canon, and many canons that were lost over history. But it's the only surviving canon, the only surviving collection of works, and I will go over in some nitty-gritty detail on what, what it is um, to this day that we have. Um, but we think that maybe the, the Buddha um, spoke Magadhi uh, or several related dialects. These were similar to Pali, but there's some differences. And I'm not a linguist. We, we did have a, a linguist here a month ago, the Sati Center, Sean Kerr, and he gave a day long on Pali and what is Pali. And Oh, thank you. Um, and it was a, I was here for that. It was, it was fantastic. It's recorded. He has a great uh, handout, that, and all of those are available on the website. So if you're interested in digging deeper, there's his day long. We had another day long on Pali, kind of from some scholars, a different, different uh, approach um, two years prior to that. So we have a lot of materials on that if you're interested in, in going further. And t- for our purposes today, I'll just throw out a few uh, Pali terms as we go along, but I won't. I, this is not a class on Pali, and I don't speak very much of it. So, um, It's a dead language, kind of like Greek and Latin, um, so it's used still liturgically. There's um, uh, monks and nuns and scholars who, who know Pali, and they, you know, they speak it to each other, um, but, you know, and there's writing in it, but it's, it's pretty much a, a language of, of uh, the scholarship of the Pali canon. Um, and... Pali was, um, you know, was, this is a preliterate time. The Buddha didn't write. None of this was written down. It was spoken verbally. And at some point, uh, the Pali language was transcribed into different uh, characters for writing. I have some examples of that. Um, it was, you know, phonetically transcribed. And... Um, you know, a great source of information on the history of early Buddhism comes from uh, King Ashoka was a king that had uh, conquered much of the Indian subcontinent about 200 years after the Buddha's death. The Buddha was um, probably born. The, uh, the latest figures are about 480. We use the term BCE, you know, not to be Christian. We Instead of saying before Christ, we say before the common era. Uh, um, and we use CE, common era, for what would be AD. So about um, King Ashoka lived about 200, I don't know the exact dates, um, 200, 250 BCE. And he left a lot of um, stuff written in stone. He, he, he erected these huge pillars all over India and then wrote on them um, lots of things, you know, like how he was a wonderful ruler and um, you know, all the wonderful things he was doing for his people and, you know, laws and, you know, things like that. And actually some suttas are actually written on these. And this is an example of, um, this is probably not Pali, it's probably Magadhi, um, you know, just historically, in Brahmi script. So this is one particular uh, script that um, exists. And so people have learned this and they've deciphered these and we've, you know, found hundreds of these all over India and, you know, have, have, have put together, and there's people who spend their whole lives just studying what's written on these things. It's, it's pretty fascinating. 
And the story of King Ahsoka is fascinating, too. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here today, um, you know, in this configuration, you know, studying this, because probably his efforts to uh, disseminate uh, the Dharma, but th- specifically through this and through uh, missionary work to sending people to uh, Mesopotamia, to Sri Lanka, to um, uh, uh, Central Asia, to other places, possibly Southeast Asia at that time, allowed it to really blossom and grow in those areas. And then um, at some point, and we'll get to this at the end of the day, uh, Buddhism was snuffed out or became extinct, I think is a less uh, stilted word, in India. And um, now there's, uh, there's a revival of Buddhism there, and there's, you know, it's coming in from different doorways, but uh, it was very vibrant for, uh, well, about 1,500 years in uh, the subcontinent of India. A lot of, of evolution that happened there. And then it, um, it became extinct in its homeland. So that's Varami's script. Here is um, Singhalese script. Or so I'm told, I don't know, but I, I have some experts here in the audience who are nodding their head. Um, and this is an ola leaf. So an ola, I think it's, is it a palm leaf or is it some, yeah. Um, we'll get to this in a minute on how things were transcribed. But um, this is Pali in Singhalese script. And then here's what we have in Roman script. This is how, um, you know, if you wanted to read the suttas in the original language in Pali, you could learn this and then, and you know, this is all available, written out now. So this is from the phonetic sounds of the words it was written down in, in Roman script. <clears throat> we'll come back to this quote here in a minute. One other thing I wanted to say about uh, the Pali canon is um, it... Uh, in addition to being a complete, well, we think a complete body of teachings of what the Buddha taught, um, it uh, is a living tradition. That is, it was uh, transmitted through um, the Theravada school um, through the centuries. And these were, you know, monks and nuns and lay people like ourselves who would go on and, you know, they would learn the teachings, they would memorize them, they would transmit them to the next generation, but they'd also practice them. So it's... Um, you know, I think that's one thing that, that's important to say about it, as opposed to, you know, now what's happening is we have some texts that um, are being found in um, the uh, uh, Central Asia that, you know, are, are preserved from, you know, a thousand years ago or so, and they, they were just kind of found, and there, there's no real surviving tradition of the different schools that, that Buddhism evolved into after the death of the Buddha. Um, many of those schools have become extinct. Um, actually, um, all of the initial, it was supposedly, uh, what is it, 18 schools within a couple hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And supposedly the Theravadan school is the only one that's, that survived. Now, Mahayana is kind of a separate thing that's, that's very much uh, evolved uh, after that period um, from these different schools. And that's become, you know, a very uh, big um, lineage. It includes both, uh, you know, different types of Mahayana. Buddhism includes Zen, and Tibetan um, is a type of Mahayana. It's, it's Vajrayana. The Pure Land schools, Chan, uh, which is similar to Zen, all of those are um, 
Mahayana schools, and probably in terms of modern times, the, the number of um, people practicing in these different schools, you know, probably the majority are in the Mahayana. There's a lot of uh, Chinese and, and Japanese um, and other parts of the, the world who, who practice uh, different forms of Mahayana. Theravada is probably a minority, and of course there's a, um, a growing number of Tibetan Buddhists in this world. So um, this brings me to a point of this question of what is this word we have, Buddhavachana. The word of the Buddha. Sorry about that squeaking. I know that can be annoying. Buddhavachana. The word of the Buddha. And um, how do we know what the Buddhists said? I mean, you know, we've been to so many Dharma talks and, and, and already probably a couple times a day I said the Buddha said, but how do we really know what is the word of the Buddha? You know, what is um, something that I made up or, you know, I, I was trained by Gil and, you know, all the different teachers in the uh, insight meditation community. So how do we know if it's something that, you know, I made up or Gil made up or maybe Jack Cornfield or, you know, Ajahn Chah or, you know, you can go back all this way. Um, so th- I don't have the answer for you. I mean, that's that's uh, maybe a rhetorical question. And we'll talk about um, some. Well, actually, why don't why don't we why don't we have a little uh, discourse about that? How would how could we I've told you a little bit about, you know, we have these suttas you can read now in English and we have some knowledge of history that uh, unfortunately ancient uh, Indian civilization was not really interested in accurate historical records. Um, And some of the dating that's been done is actually from the civilization that existed at the same time, the Greek empire. Um, And there's been some triangulation based because they were, they were very interested in keeping accurate historical dates. So we don't have any, uh, the Buddha never wrote anything. His immediate disciples never wrote anything. We've got this massive teachings now. How can how can we be certain? Yeah, let's do the mic for that. Um. Um, as far as I know, we can't be sure. Um, because the suttas, the Pali Canon, wasn't written down till what, 400 years after the Buddha's death, roughly? And that's, that's quite a long time. A lot of things can happen uh, during that time. And I think scholars have figured out that some parts of the Pali Canon are indeed older than other parts, and so other parts were maybe added later and may not reflect... You know what was what the Buddha actually taught, or maybe a few things are borrowed from Hinduism, but but we study the Pali Canon anyway because uh, most of it seems very consistent within itself, and it just works so well, so brilliant, and so effective in reducing suffering. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um. I like the idea that we don't know that it, we are we are we are um, 
within a space of inquiry. And so that seems like that models the essence of it for me. Wonderful. Um, also, um, it seems that, you know, something that the Buddha teaches is that this is all um, open to investigation and that you can find out for yourself if what these teachings are, are true or not. Yes, thank you. Yes, those are good comments. Um, you know, so basically what happened is um, the Buddha, this is what we think happened anyways, right? We don't never maybe know for sure because there were no digital recorders. Uh, the Buddha gave these teachings and then his followers remembered them after he died. Um, and there's some, in the suttas, there's some uh, image of some repetition and, and you know, um, a, awareness of needing to carry the teachings on while he, the Buddha was still alive. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, after he died, within, I think it was uh, six months, there was what's called the First Council, which was a gathering of awakened ones, Arahant, uh, who, you know, some say 500, who got together to really say, okay, is this what he said? And everyone, there was had to be like a consensus on this is what the Buddhist said um, and um, on these teachings. And then, um, and in that, uh, kind of the key figure was Ananda, the, the Buddha's cousin and his, um, really his right-hand man, you know, he was kind of his, broker, I guess, might be a way, or, you know, his agent, uh, but also he was, you know, supposedly had a, uh, an amazing memory um, and was able to <coughs> recall, the, you know, everything the Buddha ever said. <coughs> In one sutta passage, it says 84,000 different teachings. I don't know, that might be a little uh, hyperbole there, but so um, he uh, would read, you know, recite these Suttas, and then the collection would say, "Oh yeah, that's right." Or they, you know, I assume they would correct him if he was wrong, and then everyone would agree on it. And then um, Upali, another man, re- recited the the uh, Vinaya, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's like the discipline, the code, the monastic code, um, and the stories around that. So these two parts were um, kind of established at that point. And then there were teams of monastics, monks and nuns, who spent their whole time doing a type of practice. It wasn't, you know, probably intellectual. It was, it was their practice to chant and recite these, you know, not all of them, uh, but, you know, a certain, you know, portion of them. Although apparently there's still people alive today that can um, recite the whole Pali canon, that, you know, whose memories, uh, you know, they haven't been like us brainwashed by TV and um, iPhones and all of that stuff that, so that their memories are, you know, really uh, amazing and they have contests in Burma and, and uh, in Sri Lanka where they, you know, recite, you know, test these and recite these people. But apparently um, there's this whole lineage and this goes back to the Vedas really of, of people being able to um, carry on a lineage orally from generation to generation. <clears throat> And then, um, as Bill said, about 400 years after um, the Buddha's death, 
the, these groups of reciters, there was some, in, this was in Sri Lanka at the time, there was some um, threat to the community, maybe famine, maybe war, where there was a risk of, you know, if a certain number of monks were to die out, they would no longer have those teachings. So they, there was writing at that time, and they wrote it down at that time um, in Pali. That's the language they were using at the time. So at some point, it probably shifted from the Buddha's initial lang tongue of Magadhi or some dialect to Pali, and then is written down in Pali. And then we saw that that um, ola leaf. Um, it was transcribed out on these leaves, and these leaves last for I don't know, maybe 50 years. I mean, it's a tropical climate, so they they do decay. And then so at some point, somebody's got to write that out on another leaf, you know, and that's been done for generations. And now we have it in digital form and there's all different, you know, in the, in the different Pali was, um, has been transcribed in Singhalese, Burmese, Cambodian, Thai, Laotian, Roman script, Devanagari. Those are the main ones. There's, there's possibly more. Um, and it's now it's done digitally. So, but at some point, someone had to write all this out, you know, and copy it, you know, from one generation to the next. And then, um, and then we have, you know, going from the Pali. This is this is Ajahn Jeff's uh, translation. I used uh, for copyright reasons. I used his translation in the book and and in the stuff I'll be showing today. So someone took the Pali. Ajahn Jeff in this case, and translated it into English. And that's how we have it, the form we have it today. So a lot of steps in that, uh, that process, a lot of room for uh, error. Um, <clears throat> and um, I have a slide in a minute that we'll look at that shows, uh, you know, what I think are all of the different steps. Uh, what was translated in English? <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> The first translations uh, from English were done in about the 1880s to the early 1900s. And then there were, there's been trans ongoing translations. But the, the kind of the modern set of translations we have, um, Wisdom Press has done, um, and we'll, I'll give more meaning to this, has done a multiple um, of, the, uh, of the Nikayas in, um, into English, and these are uh, Abhiku Bodhi's um, Ajahn Jeff, um, also known as Tanisaro Bhikkhu, has done um, uh, many translations as well, and he makes his available for free. We, we have uh, the book's Handful of Leaves here. You can also, on the website, Access to Insight, this is all in the index, uh, the resources of the book, um, Access to Insight, you can get So the question is, why was this just translated uh, only 150? Well, because the people who spoke English didn't really encounter the Dharma till about that time. It was really wow. the British uh, colonization of India and Sri Lanka and, and all of Southeast Asia, where these um, basically civil servants and attorneys uh, in the British government um, came across the Dharma, and they they um, they were. Uh, 
interested in it. You know, they, they knew that, you know, these were living traditions, so people practiced that. And they, they initially, when they encountered them, they thought, oh, this is some, you know, weird pagan religion and it's not worth our while studying. We're, you know, Christians. And, and at some point, people started looking at it and translating and they learned Pali. You know, they, they learned the Sinhalese uh, version of Pali and studied it. And they, especially the, the uh, attorneys and the civil servants were interested in it because it, there were, it was legalistic or it, it, seemed to, it seemed to be logical, you know, maybe for some of the same reasons that we're attracted to the Dharma. And then they, at some point, started translating it um, from Pali into English. And then, you know, it's, it's taken off since there. But there wasn't a lot of contact between the two civilizations, and at least on the level of sharing um, the Dharma. It went, it's, it's had spread throughout uh, Asia, and it was, you know, you could get um, teachings and, and a certain amount of the suttas available in, you know, Tibetan or Chinese or Japanese, um, but English wasn't, uh, it, was, it was very recent. Um, no, in Sri Lanka, we actually have some <laughs> Sri Lankans here, um, and uh, I don't know if you want to make a comment, but it, but they it, it's being translated into um, a, a vernacular Sinhalese as well. I don't I think there's a, there's been a more effort and maybe some economic pressures to get more translations in English. I don't know how much of the Pali canon is available in in Sinhalese. Um, well, the, yeah, the canon in Pali, but translated to, um, is, isn't it translated also to vernacular Sinhalese? I mean, oh, okay, so, and it's, that's all available. Well, that makes, that makes sense. So probably more translations than in English. Um, I, I, that's a little confusing, I mean, because there's, just like this, you know, there's Pali, and then there's English. They have um, Sinhalese characters on that, that ola leaf. This is Pali. And then it's also translated into Sinhalese, commonly spoken Sinhalese, you know. And I don't know um, if, how, if people who read Sinhalese can read Pali pretty easily. Um, is, I guess they're similar languages. So, you, thank you for the question. Um, let's just do a little bit more here. So... Um, so here is the Pali Canon, and uh, Canon, and sometimes it's the same as the Tipitaka. Tipitaka, I always forget the T. Um, which means uh, three baskets, uh, basically. So there's three baskets to the. Polycanon to Pitaka. There's the Vinaya Pitaka. Yeah, it's in the book. Thank you. Everyone have? Did we run out of books? Okay, good. We have some. So, uh, the Sutta, Pit, uh, Sutta Pitaka and the Abhidhamma Pitaka. So initially, at the time of the Buddha, we think it was just there was just a. a, a a dipitaka, two two baskets at that first council we were talking about. Um, the vinaya, which are the monastic codes, they're the um, 
also some very interesting historical information, you know, why these different rules in the, in the uh, Theravadan monastic lineage, there's 200, I think there's 227 rules for monks and 312 for nuns, um, monks or bhikkhus and uh, nuns or bhikkhunis. And so these are just different books that give um, the rules and stories behind them. And, they're, you know, it's fascinating because you, you, when the Buddha would set down these rules, you can, as you can imagine, um, there would be some monks or nuns who would try and <laughs> get around them or some incident would, would happen. And so there would need to be clarification or another rule or some rules kind of counter an earlier rule. Um, so it, the Sangha was very much a growing body. And then what we're primarily interested in, I'd say here today, but also I think what's more easier for us to access the Dharma, to, to, to glean information for our practice, is this Sutta Pitaka. And uh, so when, we say, when I use the word Sutta, today's a Sutta study day. This is what we're studying. We're studying these five books. We're studying um, the, the Diganakaya, so those are the long discourses. And this is kind of gives you a visual on how big it is. This is very thin paper, small writing. And actually, probably if it was fully translated out, there's a lot of repetition. As part of the oral tradition, passages were repeated over and over. Um, and, you know, it's a, mon- a mnemonic to remember. There were quite a few mnemonics that the Buddha used. He was, you know, a master teacher. So... Um, you know, we're familiar with the list, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Pathway, the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination. So there's all these lists. There's the repetition that we see, um, that, you know, oftentimes when in the suttas, and we'll see this today, the Buddha will say what he's going to teach, he'll teach it, and then he say what he taught. You know, so we have that repetition, and we'll have, you know, the exact wording repeated several times. Or there may be a, a, a negation, so he'll say what is skillful, Actually, it usually starts with what's unskillful, you know, what unskillful behavior is, and then what is skillful. So you get that kind of dichotomy there. He uses a lot of synonyms, so, you know, especially for very complex things like nibbana, you know, like awakening. There'll be, you know, he'll have a whole string of words that he'll say uh, to describe that. So those are some. And then just really, I think, beautiful uh, similes, these analogies, you know, uh, I, I mentioned the one about the, the snake grabbing the snake, but there's a lot of these uh, images that, you know, one, give us a glimpse back in time to what it was like in ancient India, but also show us um, what he meant, you know, what, you know, kind of a very tangible uh, description of the Dharma. So that's the Digga, Nikaya, long discourses, and they're just kind of broken up. And this probably wasn't the schema that the Buddha used. It certainly, we don't think it was the original schema, but this is how the tradition has organized this, you know, unwieldy body of knowledge. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg, these books here. I mean, there is a lot of information here. Um, This is the Majima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. This is an... um, That first one was translated by Maurice Walsh. This is translated by... uh, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, this is one of his. And this is a real, um, I think I, I know a number of people here have spent some time with this book. Uh, it is, you know, of these different five books, I would say this one is the one that has probably about 90% of the Dharma in it. It's just an amazing book. It has, um, you know, among other things, the Satipatthana Sutta, I think many of us know, is the four establishments of mindfulness. 
It has uh, information on mindfulness of breathing. It has a complete set of teachings that the Buddha gave to his son, Rahula, um, on you know the whole gradual path of, 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 of awakening, and re- which resulted in um, his son becoming fully awake and an arhat like himself. It gives a lot of really colorful similes. Um, there are uh, teachings on um, different aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, just a, you know, a real a lot of wise speech. Just a, a lot of uh, very uh, beautiful stuff. So it's a daunting book. Um, uh, Gill did a um, year-long uh, sutta study course here, meeting monthly, and it's all recorded on the website and with the handouts. So if you're really into a, a challenge and you really want to dig into it, um, he may he may teach that again. Uh, I know it's available through the sits and it's available for self-study on the website. Bhikkhu Bodhi, the author, the the translator of this book, also has this phenomenal collection of audio uh, files where he goes through each sutta in detail. Sometimes there's like, you know, like for the Satipatthana, there's 10 hour and a half long talks going through in in fine detail. On that um, sutta. So, and then this is the Samyutta Nikaya, the collected um, discourses of the Buddha. And this is this is really kind of like a hardcore meditator's manual. You know, it has a lot of the same teachings that you'd find in, in these other volumes, but they're kind of come at from different angles and they're, they're, the teachings are kind of broken up. And this, again, would be um, bigger, uh, but they, they'll use like ellipses, a little dot, 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 meaning they're repeating the passage that was given earlier. So there's a lot, you know, if it was fully written out without the repetitions. I mean, all of the information's here, but just for to save ink, and pages, they didn't write the identical repetitions out again. And Guttara Nikaya, that's the numerical discourses, and Bhikkhu Bodhi has that a translation of that that's um, actually due out this month. Um, so that'll be available. And then there's this huge collection, Guttara Nikaya, which actually means the minor collection or smaller collection, but if you look at it, there's what, 15 different uh, books in here, and a lot of, you know a lot of these, like uh, Dhammapada. You know, to put a plug in for Gill's book, he did a, a translation of the Dhammapada, and that's probably the most well-known, most commonly recited uh, collection of suttas. You know, I think a lot of people uh, read that, and they're you know they're very pithy verses. You know, and you can read the whole book and in in well, in theory, in a sitting, but it's it's pretty. It's a lot of stuff to digest. But it's you know it's it's very accessible, and over the generations, it's become a real, I don't know, a book of psalms, or it's it's become like a a real, um, commonly known and beloved um, set, set of suttas. Um, and you know, there's the Udana, Ituvitaka, the Sutta Nipata, different things. Probably many of us have heard of the Jataka tales. These are the tales of the Buddha's uh, former lives before he was awakened. You know, so there, a lot of them are uh, like stories of animals or people, and you know, just kind of how how uh, supposedly how the Buddha worked through his uh, the paramis, his different. Um, mental, spiritual perfections to become a Buddha. This is all legend. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the history of that, but 
Um, and then and some of these um, in this uh, this Kudika Nikaya collection, some of them are probably later editions. They probably really weren't things that the Buddha taught himself. And that's what we think most scholars think about the Abhidhamma Pitaka. Abhi means higher or other dharmas, other teachings. And this is, um, it's an amazing collection of um, very detailed description of how the mind works, how the dharma works. So what scholars believe is that um, after the Buddha's death, practitioners sat down with the dharma and they went into the territories with the Buddha admonished not to go into, like what happens after you die, what's the origin of the world, you know, just a lot of, you know, these kind of metaphysical questions. And there were, there was, um, some of you know the, the simile of the arrow. The Buddha gives this simile where, you know, uh, he said, it's a, um, a monk comes, I think this is Majjhima Nikaya 66, I want to say, but, um, 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 a monk comes to him and says, you know, if you don't tell me, you know, these questions, this series of these metaphysical questions, I'm going to leave the Sangha. And the Buddha says, well, I, you know, you're, you're, you're crazy because I never said I would tell you those things. And those things um, are not uh, important I, and I won't teach them. And, you know, it's kind of like you're this man who's been shot with a poison arrow and his friends gather around and they bring they say, we'll bring a doctor and the doctor's going to pull the arrow out. And the um, the uh, man says, no, wait, wait a minute. Before you pull it out, I want to know who shot me. And I want to know what kind of poison this is. And I want to know wh- wh- how the arrow was made and what this, you know, and he has like these 10 questions about this, you know, what happened to him. And he's really focused on that rather than pulling the arrow out. So this is the, um, the simile of the poisoned arrow. And um, so the Abhidhamma, kind of veers into that territory of, you know, these things. And it also gives a very detailed look at the human psychology and goes into things like dependent origination um, in very um, in very uh, much detail. And Buddhist legend has it that the Buddha, during one range retreat, went up to Tusita heaven and taught the Abhidhamma to his mother, who had died um, a week after he was born, but who had been re, uh, reborn there as a... A deva, and he went and during this range retreat, he taught her the Abhidhamma, and then he came down to earth periodically to um, fill Sariputta, one of his disciples, in on what he had taught his mother. This is the the lore or the legend around it. And I, you know, I mean, I don't have any way of assessing that. I mean, most scholars uh, deny that version, but you know, I think most traditional Theravadins would say that's that's what happened, you know, and that's that's the the truth. So, I'm just throwing that little tidbit out there for you. So that's the uh, uh, Tipitaka. Um, and last thing before we have our, our first um, practice period, our meditation, our break, whatever you want, however you want to spend your time, I want to um, briefly go over all of the sources of error. You know, we, talked, we touched on that. So we have this body of knowledge now. How can we specifically look at what's um, possible? Yes. Yes, please. Okay, so 
I, I, I guess I'm learning about the teachings of Buddha for the suffering part or lessening your suffering. But as indicated in, you know, these books or canons or whatnot, there's also a tendency to mystify or present Buddha's life in a mythical way, which I think kind of detracts from really learning about what I believe to be the core teachings, which is really about how to lessen your suffering. Now, for example, I think in the last year or so, there was a, I think it was a PBS two to four hour series by Richard Gere. On the, I'm like, that's like, talking about demons and stuff, I'm like, that's, that's not really helpful for me. Um, it, and plus, on top of that, you know, I visited other Buddhist study groups that have lineages and whatnot, and that didn't appeal to me either because there's like rituals and whatnot associated with that. So how much of that is from Buddha's teaching versus just things that kind of took a life on its own and evolved into more of a religious uh, format? And that, to me, I've always kind of, I mean, that's kind of what I grew up with. I mean, I grew up with Buddhists that had a lot of rituals and, you know, like around death and birth and whatnot, and just, it just never appealed to me much like rituals in other religion. I was actually raised a Catholic, and that didn't appeal to me either. So, I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand is, you know, the aspects I'm learning about, the core teachings really appeal to me. But all this other stuff, how much of that is really from Buddha, and how much of it is just kind of evolve on its own, and that I don't find particularly useful? Yeah. Well, that that's a, a great question, and it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, you know, there's a lot of controversy, and we'll go into the background um, of, uh, of that time period, but, you know, there's some, pe- we've had some teachers come here at Sati Center. Uh, I think some of you probably were here, um, John Peacock and Stephen Batchelor, and they, um, uh, Stephen Batchelor wrote a book called The Confessions of an Atheist Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Buddhist I think it's atheist. Buddhist Atheist. And in that book, he really, um, you know, argues the point that, you know, the later tradition and the, the time uh, imposed all of these mythical, what he calls mythical elements on it. Um, so there's this whole movement called secular Buddhism. I think our, on, our, on our board, we have Tony Bernhardt, and I think he gave a day long here on secular Buddhism. I know he did in um, Sacramento for us at our Sangha, but I think he did that here, too. Um, John Peacock was here a year ago. We had Stephen Batchelor. And so um, they really are, you know, and they're scholars, and they're really trying to say, hey, this is, you know, this what's in here is really, um, and we'll go into this in the next section, Brahminical, you know, from the the Brahmins of the time. And the Buddha was either using that metaphorically or it was later added by monks, um, but this is not the true teachings. And, of course, I have no way of judging that. I mean, I, I think the, the model that I gave earlier of how we have to take the teachings in and, and hear it from different perspectives and then work with it um, intellectually, reflectively, and meditatively and make our own opinions. Because there's people, even in this audience, who probably really hold um, you know, in their heart this um, whole belief in rebirth and karma and how that's so essential to their Buddhism and their meditation practice. And there's people, you know, here who, you know, they just, that's just a bunch of hooey, you know. And so it, I think we all have to find our own way through this. But, you know, certainly if you enter the, this journey of, on sutta study, you will encounter, 
you know, demons and nagas and devas and, and Mara, you know, is used a lot. This, this kind of anthropomorphic uh, of of, you know, human greed, hatred and delusion. Um, you know, there's there's you know, this whole cosmology in Buddhism of different levels of heaven. You know, there's the six realms, the human realm, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, the warring God realm and then the heaven realms and, and the hell realm. Um, so there's this there's all of these other elements that you can't help but encounter in the suttas. So you either have to read over them and gloss over them, see what you can take away from them. Um, but, you know, it's uh, the point you're raising. I think uh, we all have that you know, question of how to to relate to that. And, you know, we're also twenty five hundred, twenty almost twenty six hundred years removed from that um, that time period. So it's, you know, this is a different culture in a different era. So I don't consider myself a secular Buddhist. I still hold all of that may be true. I, I don't um, when I teach meditation classes, I don't incorporate it because it's just not relevant to the students, you know, at that level, but it's something, um, karma and rebirth, maybe, you know, I don't know. I can't disprove it, um, uh, you know, so I don't want to get too far off course. Um, I think just one last slide here. Um, so in addition to the, our previous slide remembers, Tapitaka, this is the Pali Canon, we have this huge body of post-canonical literature, which goes down to, I mean, modern text, this book might be considered. So these are, uh, t- they're also called the commentarial or exegetical, exeget, exeget, I can't say that word, Exegetical, yeah, thank you. <laughs> the doctor's in me is coming out. Um, uh, tradition of of later, not not so much the Buddha, but later authors. And a big figure in this is Buddha Gosa, <clears throat> who was a monk who lived about a thousand years after the time of the Buddha. Um, probably born in southern India and then uh, moved to Sri Lanka and joined the uh, main Theravadan lineage there, or, you know, as part of it. And um, he took uh, commentary. So these are detailed analysis about the suttas. Um, pretty much for most, many of the suttas, there are commentaries. In addition to the sutta themselves, there's this, you know, this work that, you know, says this is what the context was and, you know, gives background information. This is what the Buddha meant. Sometimes it'll go into specific words. And there's sub-commentaries on the commentaries. A very important book is the Vasudhi Maga, <clears throat> translated to the Path of Purification, written by Buddha Gosa. And this has become really the, um, I guess, the de facto uh, meditation manual of the Theravadan tradition. You know, that um, you know, through its passage through Burma and Thailand and to us here, that a lot of the way we learn about meditation and learn about the Dhamma comes through uh, the lens of this book. And it's, it's an amazing book. I mean, it, uh, kind of one of the faults of the suttas is things aren't always organized and they, you know, you'll get a, a detailed description of this and then not so much here. For example, meditation uh, techniques or how to do loving kindness practice is not really... Um, laid out very concretely in, in terms that we might understand on how to actually do it, you know, not just to read about it, but do it 
in the suttas, but in the Vasudhimaga, it, it, it is laid out a lot more concretely. So we see it through that lens, and there's, there's you know, advantages and disadvantages of that. You know, that, that this um, may be influenced by the time, a thousand years distance, um, and other factors. But it's just, it's just to know that, um, and there's a movement to kind of put the Vasudhimaga aside and, you know, go back to the original teachings, the, the early, what's called the early discourses, the, um, the suttas. And to muddy the waters even further, there's the whole Chinese canon, which has, which is held by the Mahayana schools. And it has a lot of different things, different sutras in it, but it also has a lot of those same um, parallels uh, to these to these suttas, there's different vinyas for different schools and different abhidhammas. I think there's two full abhidhammas or maybe three, and there's maybe five different vinyas. Theravada is just one, and Theravada has one abhidhamma. So, for example, in this uh, Majjhima Nikaya, we had uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Analio here last year at the Sati Center, and he is um, he knows multiple languages. He's reading. Sutras um, from the uh, Majjama Agamas, kind of a parallel book to this, that were transmitted through different lineage um, in different countries and different times. So they diverged at an early point, and he's triangulating on and comparing the sutta from this collection and the sutta from that collection, sutta from the, you know, the Majjama Nikaya to the Majjama Agama. And seeing, you know, what's the concordance? Do these agree? Are they the same? And there's, you know, there are some variations, but there's a lot of agreement. So the thought is that the suttas and this this other collection, which is just beginning to be translated in English, it's available in Chinese for, for over 1,500 years, but just beginning to be translated in, into English, um, seems to be pretty faithful. So if we look at the the um, the errors uh, available in um, in, in what we have for us today. So, right, the Buddha's words, maybe they misunderstood at that first council. Maybe they got it wrong. Then it was transmitted for 400 years. Maybe there's some error that drifted in there. At some point, it shifted from what the Buddha spoke to Pali, which are very similar languages, I gather. But um, then it was converted from oral form to written form. So writing it down, there could have been some possible errors there. Copying texts, you know, those ola leaves over and over through the centuries. Maybe, you know, you get one word, one letter wrong, and that can change the meaning of the word. And there may be some, there's some evidence of some passages that may have been intentionally changed or out of confusion of the, the people involved. Um, translation from Pali to our language. There's some, you know, error that could be entered. And they're um, not understanding the cultural context. That's, that was kind of the question you raised. Um, and then our bias. You know, we hear these suttas, but we, you know, we think something else. Um, we have some different ideas about it. Um, you know, there's a simile where the Buddha describes these blind men feeling different parts of an elephant. You know, one's feeling the trunk, one's feeling a leg, one's feeling the tail. And they just, they can't see the whole picture. They're just seeing that 
feeling that part that they're touching and they're trying to describe it to each other and they, they get into a brawl actually because no it feels you know it feels like a big tree stump you know the leg or the the tail feels like a you know a, a whisk broom so they have this and so this is um i guess the buddha was saying this is us you know kind of sometimes getting things from our own and we know this you know from our own perspective we certainly are biased so that these these um Comparative studies of these two different bodies of text are show us that even though there's all these sources of error, there still seems to be a lot of agreement. And you mentioned internal consistency. That's another piece, I think, that argues for the value of studying suttas, is that you read one sutta here and then you read some, somewhere else, and very seldom will you get them to actually say, you know, to disagree or to be totally, you know, one's totally off base, you know, there's, there's really good concordance uh, internally and externally. Um, shall we take uh, a meditation period now? Let's um, say for a, does anyone have any question on that before we break? Okay. So let's have a, a meditation period uh, for 30 minutes and I'll ring the bell uh, right before it's time to come back in. Thank you.